Verse 9. I, John, your brother, the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on island called Patmos. So John now connects himself with his audience in three different ways. I am not just some cool prophet or a cool disciple that has come to you. I have this great authority, but I also know what it's like to be you as well. Like Christ is a mediator between heaven and earth, I am a mediator between this and you. The first way that he associates with them is he has described himself as a brother and companion with them and religious persecution. That he's experienced a faith. You're not alone. I'm not sitting up in some ivory tower saying, oh yes, we all had it hard during government shutdown, right? Oh, yes, I know that the prices of the grocery store is going up. Meanwhile, they're like TikToking from their houses with their multiple tennis courts and swimming pools, talking about their life. They live in their gated communities as politicians. They have, they have their private drivers, and they're like, yes, we get that times are hard in America. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're so out of touch with what people are really going through. And John says, I'm in prison on an island separated from everyone I love because I've chosen to follow this Jesus instead of the world. And I know what it's like to not get the yet. I have the already, but I am still waiting for the yet. And my life isn't super comfortable either. And yet, this is still the one you should be committed to. This is still the one you should be committed to. I have lost everything for following him on this earth. And yet I am still convinced that he is the better way. He is the better way. Because the life to the fullest, the joy to the fullest that he's given me, the connection that I have with him, and the promises that are yet to come far outweigh being back in the village and a comfortable home with a good job. And it's not easy. It's not happy-go-lucky. It's just better. It passes all understanding. Second, they were both citizens of the future kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're both citizens. We're both looking. We're part of that kingdom yet to come. We, we both know what it's like to be in this world of suffering, but we also know what it's like to be the kingdom of come. And third, they both were exercising perseverance as they remained steadfast in the midst of affliction. He knows what it's like. He knows he's like, hang in there. I know it's tough, but you can do it. And it's not like, whatever. You have no idea what it's like to go through trials and struggle. And John's saying, yes, I do. I know what it's like to grit my teeth and keep push persevering. And remember, the Bible makes it very clear that the mark of the true believer is perseverance. It's not how much theology you know. It's not how many people you witness and share Christ to. It's not how godly you are, how quickly you're becoming sanctified. It's perseverance. The ability to stick it out with Christ even when life is not easy because you're with Christ, or even when your sanctification is not happening as quickly as you would like it to happen, but yet you keep persevering, that is the mark of the true believer. That is the mark of the true believer. John himself will say, in First John, they did not belong to us. For if they did belong to us, they would have never departed from us. But because they departed from us, they showed that they never belonged to us, because by departing, they never belonged to us. You're like, okay, we get the point. But it means they didn't persevere. And because they didn't persevere, they show that they never really belonged to us. Well, side note, I know you might have loved ones who've walked away from the faith. And you're like, oh, does that, 
Yeah, but they can come back. Life is not over with. Okay, this isn't like a final statement. Okay, but in death, if they haven't come back, then that's the mark. But that's why we pray. That's why we pursue them. That's why we share with them. Because God can do anything. And so this is how he connects them. Patmos was an island in the Aegean Sea, which is the Mediterranean, about 37 miles southwest of Miletus, which is the, the, the city closest to the, on the coast. It was 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. It's not a huge island. Not like, wow, at least I have a paradise here where I have lots of restaurants I can go to. It's not exactly like some prison island. I think we get the idea from Sunday school, like flannel boards or pictures or storybooks or veggie tales, maybe. I don't know who's done it. Where he's like on this island all by himself. It is an island where people lived and did life. But it's not a pleasant, comfortable life. And it is an island where other people were imprisoned there. So there could be some pretty low-quality people there. It served as a penal colony for political prisoners of Rome. Now, you have to understand this. this. If you're a hardened criminal, you're a thief. Well, maybe not a thief, but you're, you're a murderer or you're like a gang leader or something like that or, or extortionist or, or something like that. You don't go to prison. They kill you. In the ancient world, they don't have enough people nor funds to maintain prisons. And nobody in the ancient world believes in rehabilitation. And whether our prisons are doing that, that's a whole other conversation. But nobody believes in it. When, when you go, the only people who are in prison are political prisoners. If you ever read The Count of Monte Cristo, great book. Good movie, too, but the book is phenomenal. But it's like over a thousand pages. But you can get the abridged version. I remember reading The Count of Monte Cristo for the first time when I was in school. And then I was reading and reading. I was like, man, the movie is nothing like this book. Nothing like this book. And then about 300 pages in, that's when the movie kicked in. I was like, oh, there's a whole 300 pages before the movie even begins. But basically, this guy goes to prison because he, he witnesses something he shouldn't see. I'm not going to go all the details because it's not a Contamento Cristo book report. Okay? He sees something politically that he shouldn't know, state secrets, and they find out that he heard them. So they put him in this prison called the Chateau de If, which was a real prison in France during that time period. He goes to the warden and he says, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything wrong. And the warden says, of course you're innocent. That's why you're here. Because if we kill you, we make a martyr of you and a rebellion happens. But if we keep you around, you spill state secrets. So we just make you disappear. And that's what a lot of these prisons were. So Joseph, Potiphar knew Joseph hadn't violated his wife. He knew it. Look, nobody just wakes up one day. And, I mean, his wife had a reputation. And, and you, know, you know why you know? Because if, if, if a slave who was, they were, they were racist against Jews and who was also a slave, sexually violates a wealthy, noble Egyptian woman, you're dead. And the fact that he throws him in prison means that he believes Joseph. But if he keeps Joseph out of prison, it's political social suicide for him. So he sends him to prison and says, may your God be with you. That's what John's talking about. I'm on an island with a bunch of other people that Rome just wants to disappear. I'm the people that they don't want to think about anymore. I am the social reject to the fullest for being a follower of Christ. Nobody likes me in the politics or the elite. Yet, they cannot stop the word of God because I'm about ready to write 22 chapters and send it to you. I don't know if he knew how many chapters. Well, he didn't. Chapters are bogus. 
This is how he identifies with them. Then he says, I was in the Spirit on Yahweh's day, or the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? It's Sunday. When Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, that became the new kind of Sabbath. So he says, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? He was in the Spirit, which means he was taken up in the Spirit. Lots of people have said, oh, his spirit left his body and he went up into heaven and he was there spiritually in that kind of a sense, or, or he just saw a vision. We have no idea what that means. When, 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 when Ezekiel uses this phrasing, he says, the spirit of God grabbed me by my hair and yanked me into the spirit and flew me from Babylon to Jerusalem, right? And then starts moving him around. Now, I doubt it. It was like, it's like a mother dog grabbing its pup by the back of the like, neck, right? That's how Ezekiel describes it. When John is taken up in the vision, he spends a whole paragraph trying to explain something that he has no idea. He's basically, I don't know what happened. I just went up in the spirit somehow, right? John and Paul and Ezekiel have no idea what it means for them to be in the spirit seeing this stuff. So who are we to say, like, this is how it happened? They don't even know. They experienced it. And they're like, I don't know what happened. And John is not so much as confused, but he doesn't try to explain. But Paul is like, I don't know. Like, I know I was there. Literally, it wasn't a dream or a vision, but it also wasn't quite there. But it felt it was real. I don't know. It was real. And so he was taken there. And this is what he saw. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. What are trumpets used for? Trumpets were used for announcing things. Like, yeah, we know that. They were used for announcing a charge into battle, a victory, victorious defeat of an enemy in battle, or the proclamation of the coming of the ascension of a king to the throne, or him coming into the city, or a guest. The trumpet here is the silver trumpet. In the First Testament, you have two kinds of trumpets. You have the, the ram's horn, think like Lord of the Rings or the Ricoli commercials, and you have that deep That was used at the festivals. Many of the festivals, there are seven festivals, specifically the, the festival of the trumpets, tabernacle stuff. But then there were silver trumpets used, silver for just lack of a better phrase, I don't think they, were all, all, they weren't so all of them, brass, whatever, metal. Those were used for announcing kings or, or um, going to battle, that kind of stuff. So the idea here is of, of a metal trumpet. And probably the idea is the announcement of the coming of the king and the announcement of a decree. So that when Caesar came into power, he would blow the trumpets and give a decree for the land. And Jesus' decree is the book of Revelation. It's the book of Revelation. So here's this trumpet, which would have been loud and attention-getting. They didn't have speakers in the ancient world, so this is as loud as attention-getting as you're going to get, other than like an explosion of a volcano. And he says... Um, I heard him behind me with a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Myrna, Pergama, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So everything from this point on, you need to definitely send to the churches. I turned to see with a voice that was speaking to me. And when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Daniel 7. The sinless God, man, who is Yahweh sitting on the throne. This is the first of John hearing and seeing. Many times John says, I saw, behold, or he said, I heard. But there's only a handful of occasions where he says, I saw, 
I heard, and then I turned to see, and I saw something. This shows up in four major places. Revelation 1, 10 through 12, that's what we're in right now. I heard, and then I turned and saw. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. The next one we're going to see is in chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Chapter 5, 5 through 6. The next one is chapter 7, 4 through 9. Chapter 7, 4 through 9. And the next one is, the last one is chapter 21, 9 through 11. Chapter 21, 9 through 11. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about these in detail because these are very significant moments for interpretation. Very significant moments for interpretation. John is using this device of hearing and seeing to associate two different things as the same thing. So he hears something, and then he will turn expecting to see, but he'll see something completely different. So he hears a trumpet, expecting to hear like a herald with a trumpet. Instead, he sees Jesus, not holding a trumpet, which means Jesus is the trumpet. He is the proclamation. He is the witness. He is the declaration. He is the logos, the word. The, the idea here is that they're two and the same. And this is now, right now, you might think that's not that big of a deal, but that kind of makes sense. A trumpet kind of sounds like a voice, right? Charlie Brown. But it will be very significant when we get to chapter 5, 7, and 21 for interpretation. So John is going to use this device of I heard something, I turned to see, but I saw something completely different, which means if I heard and then saw, those two things are exactly the same metaphorically symbolically right so the idea of what a trumpet is mixed with the idea of what this glorified son of man is is meant to be brought together as one picture one idea and so he sees this glorified glorious figure jesus christ but he also sounds like a trumpet bringing everything that a trumpet is he is the declaration of God because he's not just the one who speaks the word of God. He is the word of God. He's not just the one who declares victory in battle with the trumpet. He is the victory in the battle. He's not just declaring the enthronement of the king. He is the enthroned king. It's saying that he is what the trumpet is all about not just the messenger. Because he'd expect to see an angel blowing the trumpet to announce something about Jesus. And so he is the ultimate message. Like I said, this isn't as powerful of an image, interpretation of this heard and see brought together as the next three chapters are. But I think John's starting small. Because if you don't get what's happening here, then when you get to the next ones that are so completely different in their pictures you'll be even more lost. So we have to understand here on a simple level, the two are equated as the same so that we can understand it, the big one. So thus the images merge together to communicate the reality of one thing. Two images merge together to create the reality of one thing. That's what hearing and seeing does when they're coupled together. So when he turns, he sees Jesus. But he's not the Jesus that we're used to in all of our movies and cartoons and pictures. He saw seven golden lampstands. 
What are these seven golden lampstands? They're the seven churches. In chapter, in verse 21, he will tell you. Jesus will say, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. The seven churches of these. So these churches are represented by a lampstand. Now, what is a lampstand for John? It's not like in the office, Colonel Mustard with a candlestick, right? It's not this singular kind of lampstand that we have in like our houses. It's a menorah. It's a seven-branched menorah. That's the lampstand. So in, in the First Testament, God told them to build a seven in branches. The menorah had it was seven branches coming off a single post with seven branches coming out, one in the middle and three on each side. And, and they were to be carved with the, the leaves and the buds, the blossoms of almonds, an almond tree, and with the almonds carved into it. And, it, and then it has light. So it was literally meant to look like a, a tree like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And then it also burned with this flame, not a little candle on your table, but like an oil lamp, a large flame. And then this is in the temple, huge, so an even bigger flame than what your typical oil lamps would have. And it's also the light of the world. The idea is that this is why Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world. I am that lampstand. And it represented Israel. And Israel was to be they were the image of God. So they were to take the ultimate light and life. The almond tree, or the reason it was an almond tree, is the almond tree is the first tree to blossom every spring. It's the beginning of new life. And almonds were sweet. Unlike your almond milk, which is 80% water, um, when you actually make almond water, it's, it's really sweet. And so it has that milk idea, remember? His teeth will be whiter than milk. And so it represented the sweetness, the life, uh, um, the new life that God offers you by being in him. And so the idea is that Israel was to be represented by a one lampstand with seven branches, meaning that Israel was a diverse people group, but ultimately they were one people, one nation. And they were all to live together in the same land and to be outside the promised land. Israel was to be outside the blessings of God. So they were meant to stay in the promised land and attract people to them as they became the light of the world as one people group. And the seven represents completion. They were to be the complete embodiment of the image of God, right? Then what happens are you're like, well, wait a minute, don't the Jews have an eight-branch one now? Well, because later, during 164 BC, a man by the name of Tychus IV, a Greek ruler, will go into the temple and desecrate it, sacrifice a pig to Zeus in it, horrifying the Jews. They will go in and cleanse the temple. They will kick his rear in and kick, drive him out and they will defeat him. And the oil was supposed to re, be relit or restocked, refilled every single day. There was only enough oil for one day so that they would stay faithful to God. Um, and so for eight days, they tried to take the temple. Finally, after eight days, they took the temple. Horrified that the candle wasn't be able to be relit for eight days, they walked in and discovered the candle was still burning. And the oil was. They took that as a sign of God that he had backed their revolution against the Tychus IV and the taking back of the temple. And so they then turned it into an eight-branch menorah and thus became the celebration of Hanukkah. That's why it has eight branches now, but in the Bible it's seven branches. So, But now John sees seven lampstands, meaning seven separate ones. So a lampstand with seven branches, another one with seven branches, another, and each church has its own menorah. And the idea is that they are the new Israel. They are the image of God, the life of God, the light of God, all that kind of stuff. 
but they're not all one people group in one place anymore. They have been called to go out to the corners of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the furthest parts of the earth. And then Matthew 28, lo, I'm with you even to the furthest parts of the earth. And so the idea is that each church has been scattered. And they are all out in the world as their individual communities with their own lampstands. But the fact that they all have the exact same lampstand means that even though you're scattered and separated from each other, unlike Israel in the promised land, you're still a part of one body of Christ. And the spirit is what connects you all. The seven eyes, the seven torches of the Spirit of God that goes out into the world roaming around and is now literally burning your candlestands. Not burning them up, but burning. And so the idea is it's the Spirit that connects all your seven, all your candlestands. And every church has a lampstand. And it represents your testimony, your influence as the image of God in the world. And even though you feel alone and scattered, the Holy Spirit is the light burning in all of your candle stands connecting you all. Does that make sense? And that's the idea that's being communicated here. Here's what's really powerful. And in the midst of the lampstands is Jesus. You're not alone. You're not alone. It's the Michael Jackson song. You're not alone. Jesus is standing in the midst of you. Now this is huge too, because all the pagan gods, they're, they're, they're way up there on the mountains, and they don't want anything to do with you. The emperors, the kings, they're all up there in their palaces up on the hill, and they don't want anything to do with you. You know where the poor people and everybody else lives? So the, the, the emperor lives up on top of the hill in a, 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 a fortress, citadel, and then all of his lackeys, all the other governors and everybody has the money are down. And you know who's at the bottom of the hill? We are. Why? Because if an army attacks, you die first. You die first. And so they're all up there. They're not like our politicians who live up in those gated communities with all their personal bodyguards and all their chauffeurs that will bring them things and food and, and you're losing your jobs during government shutdown and struggling and all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, they're, they're up there in a good old life and every once in a while they'll come down and shake your hands and kiss babies or visit Maui, but totally disconnected. They're not a, he stands in the midst of you. So unlike him, God builds the cosmic mountain car of the Garden of Eden and he puts you on the mountain with him in the garden. And then when he has them build the tabernacle, he builds the tabernacle on the dirt floor of the desert in a teeny little non-impressive, non-multi-story tent and then he tells all the Israelites to camp as close to it as they possibly can. And then the giant pillar of fire and cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, the dwelling glory of God, comes down and rests right there with them. A tabernacle means to dwell. So he dwells with them in their midst. And then First John, or John, the author of Revelation, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. A child is born to you today. Philippians chapter 2. That you did not see as a godhood as something to be exploited, but emptied it and became a servant, a human. And then Hebrews says in chapter 2 that Jesus stands in the midst of us and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. 
No other leader has really truly done that. Maybe in the beginning, but eventually when they're powerful long enough, eventually they become more and more disconnected. All of them start off pretty good. Well, I can't say all of them, but eventually, right? Fidel Castro was backed by the American government because he was of the people, for the people, to stop the dictator that's oppressing them. He was a revolutionist that wanted to make a better life for all of his people because he suffered. And then he got power. Well, and it's all in the history books. He became the next oppressive dictator, completely disconnected and isolated from the people. Saddam Hussein, backed by the American government to get rid of the corrupt person, right? We don't have a good... Yeah, we, we're not good at backing people, but anybody who gets power eventually gets that. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Even though he is on the highest throne, he stands in our midst. He's one of us. He's been sitting on the throne for 2,000 years post-resurrection, and he's still standing in your midst. And you can boldly and confidently go to the throne knowing you'll receive compassion. Hebrews chapter 4. That's who he is. He is priest and king. And he's never lost connection with who we are. And this is what John is communicating. He was among the lampstands. You are not alone. He was dressed in a robe extending down to his feet. Robes communicated priesthood or prophethood. Um, he was dressed in a robe, dressed down his feet, and he wore a wide golden belt around his chest. This belt comes from Exodus chapter 28. The robe and the golden sash goes around his waist, um, more like up towards the chest. And the gold represents glory and divinity. And so it's wrapped around his chest, and it communicates. It's the thing that you would see. You don't just wear a belt to hold your pants up. You find a cool-looking belt so that people will know, right? Um, and so... You, you, you make it known it represents priesthood. The only time we ever see the golden sash around the waist or the chest is in um, Exodus chapter 28 when God says, this is what the priests are to wear as they go through the tabernacle. So he's communicating that he's a priest among us. Now this is important. One of the first criteria of picking the high priest is they must be one of the people. They must be taken from the people. An everyday normal person. And that's who Jesus is. This is the point that um, chapter 8 of Hebrews makes. He wore a golden belt around his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool. It communicates wisdom. It communicates wisdom. This goes back to Daniel 7 because we're told that God is sitting on the throne, Yahweh, and his hair is white as wool. It doesn't mean that he's, been, he's old and been around for a long time. It means he's been around for a long time and he's wise. He's incredibly wise. Even as white as snow, and his eyes were like fiery flames. Now, that's a little freaky. Remember, this is metaphorical, symbolic. The eyes of flame. Remember, the first time he came, Genesis said, 49, his eyes will be darker than wine. Joy, peace, life. But now he's coming with the clouds to judge and crush all the little men who've built their big hills and their empires. And now his eyes are full of fire because fire always represents judgment in the Bible. It either will judge you. Everybody's going through the fire. Peter says all of us are going through the fire. Everybody's going through judgment. And, and, and the fire will either consume you and destroy you because you're a sinner without Christ and the blood. 
or it will refine you and purify you. It will burn all the evil sin away from you and leave the image of God behind because the blood of Christ has covered you. Has covered you. But everybody's going through the fire. You're either going to be burned down to the ground in judgment or you're going to be refined and purified for the kingdom of God for all eternity. And so he's coming with fire in his eyes so that he may pierce into the soul of every human and judge them for who they are and most importantly, for what they have done with Jesus, whether they've accepted it or not. His eyes were like fiery flames. His feet were like polished bronze. Why is his feet like bronze? Because all the better to stomp on you with. Okay? No joke. Bronze was symbolic of judgment in the ancient world too because bronze in the ancient world had the highest melting point. It, 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 right now we have like steel and iron and that kind of stuff. But in the ancient world, bronze was, it took more heat to begin to melt it than any other metal in the ancient world. It was always used to contain fire. So the bronze altar that you would put a fire in the tabernacle and then kill the animal and burn the animal completely as a sacrifice for your sins. Or bronze tools that you would use to go into the fire. Bronze could withstand more heat than anything else, so it became associated with judgment as well. This is why God says to Moses, you're all being bitten by serpents. If you want to be healed and saved, take a serpent and bronze it and put on a staff and lift it up. And you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. If the serpent is a symbol of evil and chaos, why are they all supposed to look at evil and chaos with faith in order to be healed? They're not. The bronze is judgment, condemnation. So they have been following the serpent. They've been given into the serpent and temptation and evil in the wilderness. They've embraced their rebellion and sin against God. And God, Jesus, and now they're being bitten by serpents as a judgment for their rebellion, embracing the serpent against God. And God says, if you want to heal, be healed, you have to renounce the serpent. And only when you look to the serpent, bronze, condemn, judge, destroy, and look to that and say, Amen. I am leaving my life of chaos and serpent behind, and I'm following God and turning to Him. Could you be healed? And that's why Jesus says, As the serpent was lifted up, so I will be lifted up on the cross. I'm going to take the judgment of God upon myself so that you may be healed. But now He's done that. In the wilderness, Moses, after the golden calf, went to God and said, Forgive them, God for their goats in the golden calf. And God says, I forgive them. But anybody who does not receive my forgiveness must die. And so Moses goes down, and the entire nation receives the forgiveness, the repentance that Moses gained on their behalf. And they embrace it except for 3,000 people, and they die. Because they refuse to embrace the forgiveness of God. So now Jesus comes and says, I have died on the cross for you and earned and gained forgiveness for all sins of all humans in all time of the world, past, present, and future. But the only sin that is not forgivable is the rejection of Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit. If you reject the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness for that. All your sins, Hitler's sins, Genghis Khan, Jeffrey Dahmer, every, all the horrible bad people you can think of, and you and your neighbors, every sin has been paid for, whether you accept Christ or not, repent or not. Christ's death was so sufficient and efficient, it took care of all sin, regardless of people repenting or not, or embracing it. Now, the only choice you have now is will I accept 
that forgiveness that has been offered to me, that atonement. And if you say no to the atonement, well, then you can't have life outside of Christ. That's the only... People... Listen, homosexuals don't go to hell. People who commit suicide don't go to hell. Murders don't go to hell. Unredeemed people go to hell. Unredeemed people go to hell. That's it. And so now Christ is saying, I've offered you forgiveness. I was bronzed on the cross, so to speak, for your sins. And all your sins are paid for, but I'm coming back. And it's with fire in my eyes. And whoever has not accepted the, off, the forgiveness I've offered you, then you're going to be under my feet. Because Psalm 110, David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, and Jesus makes it very clear in Luke that that Lord is him. So Yahweh said to Jesus, Yahweh said to Jesus, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. You will put your feet on your enemies and crush them. Who are the enemies of Christ? Those who reject the cross. Those who reject the Holy Spirit. Christ is saying, I'm coming back. And then in chapter 19, he says, I have come, it says, the King of kings, the Lord of lords came back. His cape was dipped in blood. And with his feet, he tread the nations like grapes in a wine press. Everybody shakes their fists at God and says, screw you, screw the cross, screw your forgiveness. Well, he's going to judge you. He's going to crush you. And it's going to be the lake of fire. Now, I'm not saying he's literally going to stomp on people because he's a loving God. But he is going to judge you. And there is going to be punishment. And not only is that an incredibly sad day, everyone will mourn because some of our people that we care about are going to experience that. All the more reason to witness but it's also going to be a victorious day because the people who have wronged us and hurt us and violated us or violated people that we love and know, they're going to be finally dealt with. And Isaiah says the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Not in a sick, twisted horror movie sense, but in we will get justice because the blood of Cain's blood cries out for justice. And that's what's being communicated here. And this is why a lot of people are like, oh, the God of the Old Testament was so mean and harsh. And Jesus came and said, suffer the little children and sit on my lap and Abba, Father, forgive the prostitute and forgive all that kind of stuff. And he did. But they also forget that he also overturned the tables in the courtyard. And he also had a harsh words for the Pharisees. And he also said, I'm coming back to judge the world one day. Because he is the God of the First Testament. He is Yahweh as well. And the only people, and that's the thing that people don't realize, he was never harsh with a woman in the affair. He was never harsh with a prostitute. He was never harsh with a murderer. He was never harsh with a tax collector. Who is he harsh with? The unrepentant Pharisees. The unrepentant elite dictators of the Roman Empire. Those are the people that he was harsh with. Those are the people he condemned. And you need to always remember that. We typically look at these people with sin and we're like, oh, don't you know you're a sinner? No, 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 no. They are. They know it. They feel it. We need to have compassion for them to bring them to the kingdom of God. The people that we have harshness for, and I'm not advocating harshness in a metaphorical sense, is the people who refuse to repent. Who refuse what? To repent. The people who say, screw you and screw your God. Now, you still have compassion for them because even Jesus did. He even went to the Pharisee's house. 
but he wasn't as lenient with them. That might be a better word. Not as lenient. Because those people have already made their decision. Usually the more power and more wealth that you have, the less likely you are going to repent. Not that you can't. God can redeem anyone. But this is the idea. His voice was like the roar of many waters. You ever been to Niagara Falls? That and then some. That's the idea that's being communicated. A torrential flood. He held seven stars in his right hand. What are the seven stars? They are the seven angels that over the churches. So each church has an angel over it, guiding it. Now, this isn't like everybody has a guardian angel. That's not biblical. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying nowhere is that in the Bible. It might be true. It might not be. I don't know. But we are told that God has assigned angels over all the nations and God has assigned angels over all the churches. And so he tells you in verse 21 that the seven stars are the seven angels. He stands in the midst of all the churches of the earth and he holds the angels that rule over you in his hands. Which means he is among you and doing life with you. But he also is the supreme cosmic giant of the universe that holds all the greatest authorities, the angels, in the palm of his hand and commands them to do what he wants. Does that make sense? No one has ever maintained that tension of being among the people like a commoner and with you, but also having absolute cosmic power in the palm of their hands. This is what's being communicated. He had a double-edged sword extending from his mouth. Now, once again, freaky. This double-edged sword is a sword that is directed towards his own people when they refuse to repent of their sins. But it's also directed against the people outside of the covenant community of God who oppose his people. And so this sword is not just for the nations who attack the churches and his people. This is for the people in the church who refuse to repent of their sins. And it's not... The Romans had these short swords that were thin. And they were short because it's... Unlike Hollywood movies, you just don't go swing swords around. These things are like 30, 40 pounds heavy. If you've ever gone to like a castle or a museum and picked a sword up, they're heavy. You swing that momentum. Good luck switching the momentum and coming back. You swing it too far, your side's exposed and people kill you. Like, that's just dumb, flashy Hollywood movies. It's, it's like when they shoot their guns in the air, dumb. Or when the gun's already cocked and they cock it again because it's just dramatic and cool. But in real life, the way you do it is the Romans had these short swords and they would stab. They would just stab and jab it because it allows for quick motions. But then there were, there, but, but then there were the people outside the Roman Empire, the barbarians. Everybody who's not the powerful people are always barbarians. And they're the barbarians and they're the ones that have the broad swords. Okay, because they were going in for smashing, and they, went, they still wouldn't swing all over the place, but they had these big, broad, heavy swords that they would wield for different tactics, different reasons. This is the sword that comes out of the mouth. The, Hebrew, the Greek word here is the broad, heavy. If it hits you, even if it doesn't cut you all the three through, it's just going to crush your body. It's more like a juggernaut that you're slamming into people. And this is what's being communicated. But he's also said to be the word of God. And why is it coming out of his mouth? Because he is the word. 
And we're told in Hebrews that the word of God is the sword. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And when, when the, 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 the Pharisees and their soldiers came in the garden of John, and they came to arrest Jesus, and they said, Are you the one? And he said, I am. And the power that came out of his voice knocked them all in their butts, an entire league. And what he was communicating is, I am so much more powerful than you. My word can crush you any moment. I thought you into existence. I can unthink you. And the way he's communicating is, you don't come and take me by force, I willingly go. And now, the word is a broadsword that just crushes people. With one voice, he can take people out. With one voice, he can take people out. His face shone like the sun shining at full strength. This is the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. This is Hebrews that says that he is the radiance of God's glory. And when John saw him, he fell at his feet as though he were dead. He was so blown away. The word awesome was literally invented to describe God. They needed a word in the English language that would be for God and God alone. Unfortunately, the 80s kind of like ruined that. Okay, but the word awesome means that you literally you're just you're so in awe of what you're seeing that you, your, your jaw doesn't just drop. Your entire body collapses from awe and you can do nothing but fall at his feet and worship him. That you are nothing. When, when Isaiah sees this in chapter six, he falls before God and he says, I am ruined for I am a man of sin in the presence of righteous glory. And that word ruin means undone. In a modern day scientific age, it's undone on a molecular level. I am eradicated, evaporated. And the only thing that spared him was the grace of God. The grace of God. And then God took the coal and put it to his lips. And because he had faith, he wasn't consumed by the coal, but he was purified. But everybody goes through the fire, even Isaiah. When I saw him fell down as I were dead, but he placed his right on me, hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, every single time an angel or Jesus appears to somebody in this state, people fall down. And then every single time the angel or Jesus says, Get up, do not be afraid. Why? Because you are a person of faith and you're not under the condemnation of Christ. If you were doing this, oh, you better be afraid. If you're shaking your fist at God and saying, screw you, I will do it my way, like the Frank Sinatra song, then you better be afraid because that sword and that fire and those bronze feet are coming for you. But John, the people of God, even with your sin, even with your addictions, even with your, your slow sanctification, your faith has credited you righteousness. And you do not need to be afraid. And so Christ puts his hand on in a comforting way and says, I am the first and the last and everything in between. And the one who lives was dead. But look, I am the first and the last and the one who lives or the living one is a better translation. The living one who lives and is dead. But look, I am alive. I was dead and I am alive. Now, both Yahweh and Jesus are called the living one. They're the only ones ever called the living one. 
So by saying I am, the, and the only other person that's ever called the Alpha and the Omega and the, the beginning and the end is, is Yahweh. So by saying the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the living one, he is saying I am Yahweh. But he also says, for I was dead, but now I'm alive. That's not Yahweh. Yahweh did not die for you. The Father did not die for you. Only Jesus. Now I know you're like, well, wait a minute. They're both the same thing. But they aren't. But they are. I like the way that the Greek Orthodox say. That doesn't mean I agree with everything the Greek Orthodox believe. But the Greek Orthodox define the Trinity as three separate consciousness in one conscience. And what Jesus is saying is, I am Yahweh. I am the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. Who is, who was, and will come. But I was dead and now I'm living, which means I'm also unique and separate from him. The Trinity. The Trinity. There are so many pastors. There's a reason why we believe in the Trinity. It comes from the Word of God. It comes from the Word of God. It's very clear here. By the way, this is a great... There are many proofs in Revelation. The best way to prove to a Jehovah Witness that Jesus is not just a God, a little God, but he is Yahweh himself, is Revelation. And you can even use their own Bibles. They didn't change Revelation when they did their own version of the Bible. And one of the things that you can show them is they know that. They'll be like, oh, no, this is all Yahweh. This is all Yahweh. Because only Yahweh is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the living one, right? And you're like, I totally agree with you. Amen, brother. But then you say, but wait a minute. It says I was dead and now I'm alive. So who is that? And they have to admit it's only Jesus. So then you say, well, then your Bible is saying that Jesus and God are separate, but they're also the same. Because they hate the Trinity. And there are other passages in Revelation, but that's one that you can use, and you don't even need to know Greek to refute them. Forever and ever, I'm not ever going to die again. I raised Lazarus from the dead, but he died again. The boy of Elijah, the boy with Elisha, they died again. All the people resurrected out of their graves after my crucifixion, they all died again. But I was dead and now I'm living forever and ever and ever and ever. I hold the keys to death and of Hades. The keys, we've seen this in movies, right? Medieval, whoever holds the keys has power. And he says, look, the devil's not in hell. The devil doesn't rule hell. That's a far side comic. The devil doesn't go, the devil doesn't go to hell until his judgment in chapter 20 of Revelation. He's here on the earth deceiving the nations and leading them. The demons are not in hell. Hell is where the dead go, who are under judgment of God. And who holds the power and rules over hell? Jesus. Not in a, I'm going to put you in prison and torture you, far side comic kind of a sense, but you don't want to be with me, so that's where you go. I'm not there. But I still hold the power to it, because I hold the power to all things. And then I conquered death and the grave, which gives me the keys even more. So I have the keys because I'm the creator of all things, but I also have the keys because I conquered death and hell. And if there were ever a key master, I took the keys from them by conquering death and hell. And so that's what he's saying. I have the power. What is the scariest thing in the entire world? Death. And then storms and taxes. But death, right? And yet he holds the keys to the scariest thing. And that's why he can put his hand on John's shoulder and say, do not be afraid. Because that's not where you're going. Because I've already freed you. I did what no other could do. 
So when the Roman Empire or America or your boss threatens to kill you or kill your job or career or kill your reputation, remember who truly holds the pack keys to the most fearsome thing in the entire world, death. And it's Christ. And greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. Therefore, write what you saw, what is and what will be after these things. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is who I am as King of Kings, Lord over all things, with all things in the palm of my hand under my control, all the divine beings, all the kings of the world, and even the keys to hell and death. But I also am your priest who is among you and stands in your midst. And I know what it's like to suffer and be a human and persevere. And yet in all that, I am the one that conquered it all. I am the one that provides you life. I am the one that dwells with you. And I am the one who's coming back to crush everything that you fear in this world, everything that threatens to kill you. And they may be able to kill your body, but they cannot destroy your soul because I have that in the palm of my hand. This is why you do not compromise your faith. This is why you do not give in to the culture. This is why you don't watch movies and listen to music and do things at work the way the world does. Because whatever mockery or loss of things that you experience is nothing to being lost out of the hand of this Christ, King, God, man, everything you can imagine. 